Now, take your Bible if you've got it, and we're going to read from Psalm 19 this evening as our sermon text. This is God's holy and inerrant word. We read it now as an act of worship. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, forever, O Lord, your word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are moving from some of the minor prophets. We spent, uh, I guess, a year in Hosea and Joel. And uh, this evening we are embarking on a new adventure. We are working our way through uh, what we might call 33 essential doctrines. I wonder if you might know where those 33 doctrines uh, come from. Uh, They are found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are 33 chapters in the Westminster Confession, and we want to take our time uh, working through those essential doctrines. If you read the pastor's note, and you have read um, over the past, uh, I guess we started working in September or so in the Ligonier uh, Survey of Theology, if you read that, and um, I I, I am well aware that probably a lot of those notes had sort of maybe a sour tone or a pessimistic tone, and honestly, reading the results of that survey is reason to cause anybody I think a little bit of pessimism, just and not—it's not the sort of pessimism that comes from the outlook on where the world is. I mean, we know we—you watch the news and you, you know, um, Tucker Carlson and, and all the other personalities that you may keep up with, and and that enough is is enough to make you a little bit pessimistic. Um, but then you look at the state of the actual of, of those who profess faith, um, and. And it's, I guess, maybe can be a little more pessimism-inducing. Um, 
So, one of the things that comes out of that is you find, I, I was actually at the funeral, at the funeral this past, at, at Michelle's grandmother's funeral this past week, I was talking with another minister, and he, he said to me, uh, he's in Startville, Mississippi, and he said, you know, I did something different this Advent uh, season because I preached on, I preached on the actual uh, who Christ is as our mediator, his person, that he's a divine person and a human person, uh, uh, two natures in one person. And I said, I, I think that's wonderful because if you, if you look at the state of the church, a lot of the people really don't know who Christ is. They, they, they can't make a faithful profession in who Christ is. And so I, I, I wanted to, to start going through the Westminster Confession of Faith because it lays out for you in 33 simple chapters some of the essential doctrines that the Bible teaches. Um, so that hopefully at the end of this seven-year adventure, <laughs> um, we will all feel a bit more established and grounded and firm in our faith. I don't know if it's going to take that long. It might be 10 years. Who knows? But as you begin a study of the Westminster Confession of Faith, something ought to really slap you across the face. Because chapter 1 is of Scripture. And if you went through my Sunday school class on this, you remember one of the first questions we asked is, well, why in the world do you start with chapter, chapter 1 with of Scripture? It seems natural to me that you would start with of God. Don't we need to start with God first and talk about who God is before we ever get to the Bible? And the answer to that is, well, no. Because we understand who God is primarily from what? The Bible. So the believer's position is this, that we don't argue for people to accept the Bible. It simply is. It is God's Word. It is holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, infallible, inerrant, everything that we're going to say about it over the next four weeks. And it is God's Word. As I think back on my own conversion, I think, as I've shared with you before, sometime in my late college days, one of the things, one thing stands out to me so clearly that in those days, the Lord seemed to instill in me a deep hunger for God's Word. And I think that there is one characteristic, if you're looking for one characteristic in a believing man or woman that sort of assures him that he belongs to the Lord, it should be this, that he loves God's Word. And you've probably heard people say before, well, you know, what, what is the Bible? The Bible is God's love letter to His people. And I don't get on that bandwagon so much. I mean, there's a lot in there about God's love for His people, certainly. But I think we all, we can describe it in this way. It is God's disclosure of Himself to His people so that as I read God's Word and as I meditate on it, what does it do for me? Well, it unites my heart to the heart of God. And man, that's, that's the believer's desire. 
I just a believer to have, Pastor Danny prayed, make my loves your loves and, and cause me to hate the things that you hate. Well, if I want that to come true in my life, I need to go to God's word and discover what those things are. God leads the believer to study his word because in the word you find the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is on every page. And I think about, you remember the story of the, of the men on the Emmaus Road and they're, they're walking in Christ's uh, appearance is for some reason shrouded to them. They don't identify him uh, 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 right away. And he explains to them from Genesis to 2 Chronicles that how all the scriptures uh, declare Christ to us. You remember within those men, it says that their hearts burned. Well, that's what we pray for, that as we go to God's word, it will inflame um, a passion for God. It will be like Bear Grylls trying to get his survival fire started and he is stoking that fire. When we read the word, it is about, it is surviving in this world with a love for Christ, stoking the fire, the zeal, the passion for the Lord. But where we're beginning tonight is trying to understand what we actually believe about the Bible. And the confession of faith begins us in paragraph one with talking about the necessity of Scripture. Do you know that the Bible is needful? We need the Bible. And, and maybe not in the sense that you're thinking, well, you say, well, I know I, I need the Bible um, to teach me what to do. And that's true. But that's not exactly where we're going to go with this tonight. And so I'm going to read to you just paragraph one of Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter, chapter one. And it says this. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will which is necessary unto salvation? Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now Ceased. And just to put that in a simple phrase for you, man may observe creation and providence. You can look at nature, in other words, and you can discern God's existence and his glory. But in order to understand salvation, you must have the Bible. And so we're looking at this under three simple, three simple headings, general revelation and what it's good for, where general revelation falls short, and then finally, the special place for special revelation. Go back with me just for a second here to Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. One of the, the things that you ought to treasure this psalm, it ought to be a special psalm for you, because it speaks to us of two aspects of God's revelation. It begins by talking about how God has revealed himself in nature, and then it goes on to talk about how God has revealed himself in his word. And so it takes the two aspects of God's revelation and puts them together in one beautiful, concise confession. 
as it were, that you can look to and seek to understand and grow in your love for the Lord. But as we think about this, and, and especially the confession of faith, it teaches us first how God has revealed himself to us. How God has revealed himself to us. And he's revealed himself to us in nature. Do you know that? That God reveals himself to us in what he has made. The natural world reveals knowledge about God. Did you know that it was specifically created for this purpose? God created these pine trees and this grass and the wood that has gone to put this structure together and the concrete and the steel and all of these facets, all of these elements are created for one purpose, to declare the glory of God. This is what Psalm 19 reveals to us. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 3, tell us that creation speaks to man. It speaks to man. It's, it's personifying uh, the sun's rise and the sunset, the, 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 the travel of, uh, of the earth around the sun, telling us that creation cries out to man to do what? Behold God's glory. See His handiwork. So the light of nature declares to us that there is a God. And, and notice what the psalm says. It says their voice goes out in verse 4 throughout the whole earth. So in other words, it's, it's like saying that, that in a sense, creation is like missionaries that God has sent throughout all of his creation declaring his glory. The confession says not only does the light of nature Reveal God, but the works of creation. What is God's work of creation? Well, you, you know what that is. It's the fact that God has created all things, especially man. Look with me at Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 to understand a very special part of this. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You see, what Paul is getting at here is in, in, in Romans 1 through 3, Paul is talking about man's interaction with Revelation. And here he says that not only in Romans 1 we think there is an external, um, uh, God has revealed himself externally to man in what he has made. It declares God's glory and majesty and power and wisdom. But if the world is an external sermon on the existence of God, the conscience is an internal revelation of the law of God. The conscience is that part of a man on which the law of God is inscribed. And, and Romans chapter 2, 15 says that it is inscribed on every man's conscience. There is a natural and innate um, sense of right and wrong, and you think about a child, you, you, 
observe, observe your children and your grandchildren, even from a very young age, before you've had an opportunity to tell them in fine detail everything that's right and wrong to do in your home, you, you will often see them go and do something, and then there's that moment of hesitation when they look around to see if somebody is watching them or if they've completed the task to see if they've been observed. Are there any witnesses? And this is before they've been fully catechized or they've read the scriptures all the way through. There's an innate knowledge of, of right and wrong that's written on the heart of every man. There's a sense of guilt. And Paul says this is even in the Gentiles. You Jews have the law on two tables of stone, but they don't. And But observe, Paul is saying, if you look at Roman law, look, they affirm many of the things that the law affirms, and they reject many of the things that God's law rejects. So the conscience is another aspect of God's revelation. But the confession goes on and it says there's a third revelation of God, and it is in the works of providence. What is that? The works of providence. Well, very simply, it is God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. In other words, history, history reveals God to us. History, all history discloses God's providential work amongst men. Now, Scripture narrows, the, the Bible's consideration of history is very narrow, isn't it? Uh, after you get uh, past Roman, um, sorry, Genesis chapter 11, when you get to Genesis chapter 12, we're just considering one line. That's what we're concerned about because of the line of the Redeemer. But as you think about Romans 8.28, which says that God works all things out for the good of those who love him, what do you learn? Throughout history, God has been orchestrating and directing every single event to the good of his church, to the good of his people. History, therefore, is the story of God's sovereign work of redemption and the preservation of his people. So as we stop here just for a second, one of the things that we have to, to acknowledge is, is, is the confession of faith is not, beginning by, to, it's not beginning by saying, look, yes, all that's out there, but it's not good enough. No. There, there is the word all, though, that begins it. But, but one of the things that we begin by saying is that all knowledge comes from God. Every fact, this is so important, every fact is a created fact. Do you understand that? There are no facts in the universe that have arisen on their own. Two plus two and the Pythagorean theorem didn't just come about because men discovered them. They were put into creation by God. And this is so important because you and I, we are, we are trained to think that mathematics and history and science are distinct from the study of theology and, and they each have their own place. But scripture teaches us that to study anything, think about this now, to study anything is to study 
God. So you and I have a special place in creation then. Man's special place in the universe is to observe these facts that God has created and find in them the revelation of God and His glory. So your place is when you study biology or chemistry or history, you are looking for God, the revelation of who he is in all of those things. And so this is one of the reasons that that I am particularly passionate that we as the church have to be involved in the education of children. Because Christians are uniquely qualified to teach. You understand that? Christians are uniquely qualified to teach. Why is that? Because Christians alone can teach true knowledge because we teach its ultimate end. There's no fact of the universe that exists just to be a fact. Two plus two equals four points us to a divine and a sovereign creator. So God has equipped us to observe his creation and to convey knowledge to the world because we understand the end, which is God's glory. Now, let's get to that little word called that's uh, although. It says, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness and wisdom and power of God, etc. But the there is a place that we see, secondly, that general revelation falls short. Now, general revelation is infallible. What weather and the uh, uh, water cycle and biology, chemistry, what these things are designed by God to reveal, they infallibly reveal. They are inerrant. It is sufficient. Remember, Scripture in Romans chapter 1 says that men ought to observe what's around them, this creation, and acknowledge the existence and glory of God. If they don't, they are inexcusable. It's their problem, not nature's problem. Nature infallibly, inerrantly, sufficiently, authoritatively declares all that God intended for it to declare, even His wrath. We learn in Romans 1. So there is an aspect of knowledge that God does not disclose in nature. What is it that God did not intend for nature to disclose to us? Nature does not disclose the way of salvation. Very simply, nature doesn't disclose to us that God would send His Son to die on a Roman cross in order to take our place and offer Himself as a substitute for our salvation. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So what Paul is saying is that in the wisdom of God, uh, the world did not know God through wisdom. In other words, what it could learn on its own by interacting with creation. And in chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, he goes on, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, 
but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, um, there is a, a fault in man that keeps him from adequately interpreting the facts around him and giving glory to God. They can perceive God's wrath and the need for propitiation and expiation. Think about this. Um, if you took a trip to Cajamarca, Peru, you would encounter a very historical place. It's a historical place because back in the 15th century, think about this, back in the 15th century, Pizarro, Spanish conquistador, had a great battle with a man named Atahualpa. It's hard to think that, you know, just in the Middle Ages, as we were coming out of the Middle Ages, there were still Incan tribes uh, in Peru. And so the Incan Empire came to battle with Pizarro. But one of the things that was so, uh, so I guess, disgusting to the Spanish uh, explorers is that when they got to places like Trujillo and Cajamarca, do you know what they found? They found human sacrifice. In fact, not too long ago in a place called Huanchaco, they found a place where one over a hundred children and some llamas all were sacrificed in this one 7,500 square foot place, all buried together. Why do I bring that to your attention? Well, because it shows us as you go around the globe that men on their own, they, they, dis, they discern that there is a God and surely he must be offended. And we have to satisfy him in some way. But creation isn't sufficient to show them how this God is satisfied, how his wrath is appeased. And so that brings us to our third point, the special place of special revelation. Go back with me to Psalm chapter 19. In verse 7, the psalmist David transitions to talking about the law. He goes from talking about general revelation, that which can be discerned about God in nature and in myself, to what is discerned about God in his written word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, Paul is talking there about how men through their own wisdom could not discern their way to God. Well, the, David here, he says, look, in Psalm 19, what is it that revives the soul? It's the law of the Lord. Genesis to Deuteronomy. Go there, and there you can understand your way. Or look over with me at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? In other words, what man on his own is able to discern how he has offended the Lord? You see, it, it, going back to uh, 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 the Incas in Peru, they think that they can appease God by sacrificing children. They don't understand that this is an even greater sin than perhaps the ones that they had been experiencing. 
Who can discern his errors on his own? So this is the place for God's word in the believer's life. This is why the Bible is necessary for us. Because it is the Bible alone that teaches us how to be reconciled to God. This is knowledge that you cannot find any other place but here. The confession teaches us a couple of things about it. The special place of special revelation. It is a God-given word. In other words, there was a point in time where God began to declare himself to mankind in a special way. If you look over at Hebrews uh, chapter 1, the writer there is talking about how God used uh, to declare himself. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In many ways, at many times, God spoke to our fathers. You think, uh, just over the past four or five weeks, we've looked at how God appeared to Abraham in a dream. He appeared to Jacob in a dream. He spoke through uh, Jacob over his son uh, Judah, and he prophesied over him. The Lord gave dreams, and he gave visions to men to declare his will. And these were all given, think about this, why did God appear to Abraham? Why did God appear to Jacob when he put his head on the stone? Why did he do that? Why did he give dreams? Why did he give visions? For one purpose, to declare his will for the salvation of mankind. It's one purpose. So what happens when God has finished declaring his will for the salvation of mankind through these special means? They end. And this is exactly what the confession says to us. These former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. God no longer speaks to us through whims or intuition or still small voices. How does God speak to us today? Through his word. Remember this morning we said that um, how, how did Jesus try to assure John in his moment of doubt? Well, he turned him to his word. He quoted Isaiah 42 or perhaps 49 to John or putting these together. He was turning John to his words. And you remember Jesus' words to, uh, the, the, uh, to Lazarus when he and the, the rich man and the rich man had descended into hell and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom and he spoke to the rich man who said, I want you to send Lazarus back to my brothers. I have brothers. I want them to know how to be saved. Do you remember what Abraham said to to the, to the uh, rich man who is in hell. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. So God doesn't cause you to depend on whims or intuition or still small voices anymore. Do you know what he wants you to depend on? He wants you to depend upon his word. The confession puts it this way. Why has he given it to us? For the better preserving and propagating of the truth. Why has he caused it to be written down? 
and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same wholly unto writing. You know, the special revelation ought to have a special place in your heart and mine. Why? Because the fact that we have God's Word is itself a declaration of His love and His care for us. It declares His love for Christ. And He's given it to you for your comfort so that He can preserve you through, through those times of doubt. So that the truth can be propagated. You can take your Gideon New Testament and you can say, I don't have this whole thing memorized, but here. And the truth is propagated and new Christians come about. The first thing that we learn in the Westminster Confession of Faith is that God's Word is necessary. It's not, it's not necessary because the creation is broken or it doesn't speak clearly. It's necessary because the Bible alone teaches us how to be reconciled to a loving Father through Jesus Christ. Man may observe creation and providence to discern God's existence and glory, and I'll just add, and he ought to. But to understand salvation, he must have the Bible. And praise be to Christ that he has given it to us. Now let's pray. Lord and God, we thank you so much for your word. We confess that um, we are undeserving of all that you've given to us. But we thank you that spread upon the pages of Scripture is the beauty of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, I, as Danny has already prayed, Lord, I ask that in my heart and in every heart here, we would recommit ourselves tonight to turning to your word. Our Lord Jesus, quoting Moses, has said, It is our food. Your word is bread to the believer. And so I pray and ask that as we crave at times certain foods, that our craving for your word would be even more. That that man in Psalm 1 would be us. We would be the people who meditate on your word day and night. Why? Because there you are. There you are in those pages. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.